the Digiday Podcast. I'm Kaylee Barber, Media Editor at Digiday. And I'm Tim Peterson, Senior Media Editor at Digiday. This week is the second episode of our four-part CRO series, where we talk with different CROs across a variety of media companies, including The Washington Post, BuzzFeed, The Daily Beast, and this week, Fox Media. So, Tim, you spoke with Ryan Polly this week about how the role of the CRO has changed, and particularly how they have to handle the economic downturn right now. But what did Ryan say about his role as a CRO at Vox Media and how that position has kind of ebbed and flowed over the past few years? Yeah, so, I mean, Ryan, like the CRO position, like uh, formally changed at the start of this year, in March of this year, where um, they Vox Media added, you know, oversight of, consumer revenue and commerce to Ryan's role. And I think it's something of a theme, like, you know, it came up in your conversation with Mia Libby last week, where historically the publisher CRO role had been effectively head of ad sales, but now we're seeing that role expand to oversee all of revenue as, you know, chief revenue officer title would imply. And that's what Ryan talks about of how they have all these different revenue streams now at Vox Media. And so, um, a big reason for bringing it all together under him is to ensure that those revenue streams are working together and not cannibalizing each other. Like you wrote uh, earlier this year, a piece for Digiday about how commerce teams and advertising teams inside media companies can kind of end up being competitive with each other. And so that was something Ryan and I talk a bit about of how like the organization helps to avoid that kind of competitiveness. Um, Ryan also it helps to tee up next week's interview where, uh, which will be, you spoke with Joy Robbins from the Washington Post. Um, Cause he talked about like Joy was one of the first people that he spoke to about his changing role to get advice because it was, you know, something that she had gone through as well. So just a lot of, oh my God, I'm going to use the word synergy, synergy across this series. Yeah, I think there are a lot of common themes from the CROs we've spoken with already. But one of the things that I've heard in my conversations is that the to quote you again, synergies between (laughs) advertising and subscriptions, that is kind of like almost a strategy for getting through what's now become like an economic downturn. And it necessarily wasn't expected, you know, coming into 2022. But a lot of the publications that we're talking with have really said the same thing about needing to focus on how these things add value to each other. That makes sense. Um, How did Ryan kind of talk about his approach to this period of slowdown in the advertising uh, industry, but also in the economy as a whole. Yeah. So we talk about how, you know, for example, you know, Vox is already trying to get ahead of the downturn a, a bit by making some cost cuts. You know, the week we did the interview uh, a couple of days before Vox Media laid off uh, 39 people, so about 2% of its workforce. Um, and, and Ryan also talks about how they've seen that there has been, um, you know, to quote him, a pretty clear tightening across the entire economic landscape. And so um, what they're trying to do with that, especially on the advertising side, is to one, they have now merged with Group Nine, so they have kind of that scale to help them. Of they have enough inventory on hand, and it's a fairly diversified portfolio to hopefully then for them get um, different types of advertisers based on who they're trying to reach. The challenge that they, like others, are having is just it's hard to know what the rest of the year is going to look like at the moment. Um, I mean, even a day before. 
we spoke, uh, Roku had their earnings report and they pulled their full year guidance. And I think that's across the board where there are these echoes of spring 2020 where having that visibility right now is really limited. Um, and, and Ryan mentioned that being um, something of a challenge, but at the same time, given that the business that they're in, like long-term visibility can always be kind of limited because advertisers don't buy digital um with like these year long commitments like they do traditional TV. So in some respects, companies like Vox Media are, I don't necessarily want to say like well positioned, but the uh, uncertainty of the moment isn't all that unfamiliar for them. I'll let you get into it with Ryan. Thanks, Tim. Cool. Thanks, Caleb. Ryan Polly, welcome to the Digiday Podcast. Good to see you, Tim. We're uh, in person here in studio. In person. Yeah, momentous. Not only like is this part of our latest series on CROs, but our, my first in-person podcast since I started co-hosting the podcast with Kaylee. So like we've done, well, we've done two at events, but in, outside of the events format. So I guess we got to put a little bit of an asterisk on this one. No, no, no asterisk, no asterisk for this uh, recording. We're uh, we're doing it live. I'm just uh, uh, upset that you're not wearing your uh, judge wig from the video uh, oh, protection God. video. Yeah, no, I thank God Amazon uh, accepted the return on that. <laughs> I didn't have to eat that cost. Uh-huh. Thanks for watching that video. Um, yeah, so back in the spring, Kaylee and I started talking about wanting to do another series. We were trying to figure out Okay, we did the inter- editor-in-chief series last year. What do we want the next series to be? And this was like a few weeks after your role at Vox Media broadened where you also took over uh, consumer revenue as well as commerce and affiliate, which is part of commerce. Um, and so we were thinking, and then, you know, Joe Robbins at The Post, who's going to be next week's episode, um, her purview is also brought in. So it just feels like there was all this all these shifts going on with the CRO role. And this was before everything with the economy since then, which has felt like it's only made the CRO role even more important and interesting, but kind of, you know, laying the table for this conversation. So that change in March where your role broadened, what precipitated that? Like obviously the group, group nine acquisition had closed at that point, but what's different about the role now? Yeah, sure. Well, um, I am uh, thrilled to be here and happy to be uh, followed by Joy. Joy was actually the first call I made uh, to get some advice about the role. Um, so I think she her role had expanded uh, a couple weeks or a couple months before before mine did. But uh, but yeah, I think I think it's a sort of a trend that's happening across the industry, as you noted. Now we're trying to build, bring sort of the revenue streams together because I think there was a historical um, expectation that like diversifying revenue meant that there were like the business lines were in competition with one another. Um, and in fact, I think what what I am realizing and and what many companies are realizing is that they can really like benefit from one another. One on the advertising side, um, it's uh, having the benefit of sort of affiliate and commerce alongside the media solutions on from a brand perspective, like marketers are bringing those two things much closer together and those conversations are happening in a more streamlined way, but also from a consumer revenue, leveraging all of the same capabilities. Like I feel much more informed now when I go talk to a CMO about sort of marketing strategies. We have a a large like paid acquisition team and budget, and we have the same challenges on how much do we prioritize brand versus performance and sort of how do you bridge the attribution gap between the two. So, um, so it's been a really, you know, fun, challenging ride so far, but, uh, but I think, I think you'll continue to see more of this coming together. Got it. And like with your role change, I imagine, I imagine that also 
leads to changes inside the revenue organization. Mm -hmm. Like, to what extent did you all restructure in light of the change with the role? Yeah, well, there was, um, uh, so we, we brought in the commerce team at the same time. We, as you mentioned, it was the group nine, um, merger. And so we were going through a very big organizational integration. Um, so it's a little, uh, hard to disaggregate maybe like what was merger related and what was role sure. changing, but, um, but we still, you know, we have the large advertising team and then, um, we have, we had a, a great commerce and affiliate team uh, led by a woman named Camilla Cho, um, who joined my organization as did. Um, and then recently we announced that, uh, Priyanka Arya, who came from the group nine team, uh, will lead consumer revenue. And so we've really still got focused attention on those business lines. Um, but sort of now all as one, as one commercial team. Got it. And so like the consumer revenue front, because obviously Vox Media got into the consumer revenue side of things through the New York, New York media yeah. merger. Um, but there's been the testing with like Vox.com doing, you know, reader contributions. But, you know, in terms of subscriptions, that's still been largely in New York. Mm -hmm. At this point, what is the subscription strategy for Vox outside of New York media? Yeah, so we've got a number of sort of consumer revenue products. You're, you're correct that the sort of most notable and still the largest is, um, New York magazine. And we still, um, we've seen, uh, a lot of growth over the last couple of years with New York magazine. I think what we found is, um, the product is very, um, uh, maybe outside of the traditional news cycle. And so we haven't seen the same like dramatic drop off from, previous presidential administration to the, to the current one necessarily. Like we've maintained growth sort of through the ups and downs of like political news cycles, which we're How much has it grown um, proud of. Um, well, we, last year we, we saw nearly 50% growth and we're seeing sort of similar growth so far, um, this year. Okay. Um, and the, and, um, so we're really, we still feel like there's a ton of opportunity with New York magazine. Um, and, uh, but we've also, um, we launched Vox contributions in, uh, middle of 2020 and that's been, uh, successful. Uh, there's a, a huge community of Vox, uh, contributors that feel really strongly about the content we acquired, uh, when we acquired cafe studios, um, their, uh, uh, pre Perara's podcast has a cafe insider program. Um, that's a paid subscriber, uh, audio only content business. Um, we acquired hot pod, the sort of podcast, uh, newsletter, um, industry newsletter that also has a, a paying subscriber base. And so we still feel like we've got a lot of sort of irons in the fire and we feel really strongly about both New York magazine, but what some of the other opportunities are around newsletters and around, um, paid audio products, which we'll continue to experiment with. Okay. So is it paid audio really where you're looking to, you know, beyond, you know, what's going on with New York media and what you've acquired in terms of the other subscription business? I think paid audio is definitely a, a place that we're, we're sort of excited about and looking at, but, but as I mentioned, like Vox contributions, we still feel really strongly about, um, uh, and, uh, and, and even expanding some of the like paid, uh, newsletter opportunities as well. Okay. And with Vox contributions, like I think when we had Melissa Bell on the podcast and I want to say it was December, mm -hmm. 2020, she talked about, you know, this being a contribution, a way for people to support Vox.com, but not make it so that you had to pay in order to get yeah. anything mm -hmm. out of Vox.com. And I think even when we had Neelai, we've had a lot of Vox people on the podcast, <laughs> but when we had Neelai Patel from The Verge on last year, um, that's been kind of a, a stance at The Verge too is, mm -hmm. We want to make this stuff accessible to the audiences. We don't want to pay wallet necessarily. But so as you're looking to roll out more subscription products, mm -hmm. do you still look to thread that line or will there be products that 
end up being only subscriber available. Yeah, well, we'll we'll look at sort of any sort of version of what this looks like. But I think our general sort of thesis continues to be um, sort of creating additional value for sort of paying customer subscribers um, in whatever um, version versus um, – uh, you know, the alternative. And so that's where we're thinking about like, where can we add value to the experience? That's why cafe insiders is a great thing. Like you've got, um, sort of pre main feed is available to everybody, but then there's some extra content that the loyalists can subscribe to get, um, exclusively and, and sort of ahead of time. And so that's, that's a model I think that we're, we're, we're sort of feel pretty good about and, and want to want to do a little bit more with. Got it. What's the first candidate for a new reader revenue product in oh, terms of the, wait. wait and see on that one. Okay. <laughs> Cause it seems, I mean, you all are doing kind of, you know, segue into the commerce mm-hmm. side, but Commerce, you're doing more on that front. Um, you have like kind of your deals products and like also, you know, product recommendations. Um, and it feels like there's also been some, like the wire cutter at the New York Times, for example, that's a subscriber product. You can check things out, but there's a meter to it. And so are you looking at commerce products as also subscription products? Uh, not today. Um, we feel like the strategist, which is sort of a big part of our current commerce and affiliate strategy is um, like just a great place for people to go to get recommendations on products and get recommendations around sales and different deals. And we just came off a very successful um, uh, couple prime day uh, 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 from last week or the week before, whenever that was. And, um, and so Today, that's still the the sort of plan. One thing we're sort of looking at and what the strategist has in particular with its newsletter product is like a really um, engaged community. And so thinking about what do we do with this community of loyalists, whether it's through newsletter or through um, in-person opportunities or exclusive deals, things like that, trying to, again, like bring extra value to that versus, um, you know, block access to it. Got it. On the commerce front, so you mentioned Prime Day. Like that was successful. Sarah Guaglioni did a great piece for us where she looked at how for a lot of publishers, I think Vox Media was included in that. Prime Day was kind of a record day for them in terms of you know driving commerce sales. Um, but then on the other side of things, there's been some headwinds for commerce businesses. Mm-hmm. Commerce businesses overall, not even just publisher commerce yeah. businesses, but like Shopify just had layoffs. Um, Amazon just reported earnings yesterday. Mm-hmm. And like their, you know, retail business isn't, you know, growing as much. It's Amazon, so they're at that mm-hmm. level where they're not gonna be growing as much. Um, but then, you know, BuzzFeed on their Q1 earnings report talked about how Facebook referral traffic isn't driving their commerce business as much, and that's not growing at the pace that they had expected when they filed for the SPAC IPO a year ago. How is the commerce growing business growing for you all right now compared to what your expectations were for 2022? Yeah, well, I think we're we're seeing growth, and we feel good about the growth. I think what the industry saw um, was, you know, the dramatic uptick in e-commerce in particular in 2020 when the pandemic hit pulled a lot of that growth forward and so it depressed sort of growth rates in subsequent years and certainly last year um uh and maybe even to a degree this year but it's still on if you sort of spread it out and you know zoom out it's still on a pretty steep linear trajectory um up but the growth maybe just got pulled forward by the pandemic a little bit and so um and so that's sort of what we're seeing but the with the strategist in particular we can be really um unique in the types of content and sort of opportunities we offer. Earlier in the year, we did a, a sort of exclusive two-day sale for just the strategist where we go out and secure exclusive deals with um, a num- 
I think over 50 retailers um, and sort of bring that to the strategist audience over the course of two days. And it's great for the retailers. It's great for the audience. You get exclusive deals. And so things like that, we can be really, um, you know, we can experiment a lot and, and drive a ton of value for the, for the consumer and for the audiences in that respect. And so through that lens, like we've had to adapt, we've had to expand, you know, the coverage areas and things like that. Um, but if you've got a brand that has deep consumer trust, then what we've seen is you sort of can level out some of the ups and downs of the, of the cycles. It's when you, you know, if you're publishing content for just a search audience and it's drive by traffic and there's not like brand loyalty or you don't have the brand trust on like product recommendations, that's where you, you know, you, you're subject to the flows of the market, but, um, with sort of the loyalty and the trust that the strategist and the verge and the cut too, we launched the cut shopping, um, recently, uh, like that's what we're, that's where we're seeing it. Got it. And with that, like, are you having to make adjustments in light of, I mean, not only so the supply chain issues, but with rising inflation, you know, the consumer sentiment and their con consumer confidence index mm -hmm. came out earlier this week. Consumer confidence has dipped, you know, again. And so there's kind of that concern kind of across the entire economy of just how much are people going to be willing to spend and how much discretionary income is there going to be? How do you manage the commerce business in light of all that? Yeah, well, it, it's a little challenging. And, and as you mentioned, it was a really great um, sort of prime day performance. And so we, we drove 30% more gross sales than we did in this year than we did in prime day last year. So we saw the total volume increase, but what we saw is the product mix changed pretty dramatically, like very high volume uh, and lower priced products that, you know, more household goods, things like that, uh, household appliances, and a lot less spending on the big ticket consumer electronic product TVs and things like that. And so the, we're sort of seeing the shift in, you know, consumer behavior versus on what people are buying, but, um, but it's still resulting in, in like total sales growth. Um, so it's been interesting. It's a really, as you sort of noting, uh, like a lot of competing indices and different factors that are uh, in the market right now. And so it's a little difficult to sort of get a real firm grasp on like, where people are at and where people's heads are at, but um, we're prepared for you know any number of things in the second half of the year. But as you you can see, sort of the ability for someone like the strategist, which is um, you know high quality but general interest, can can adapt to what what the consumers are looking for. Right. And are you seeing anything that's almost the inverse? I've had a couple of conversations this week with people who are talking about there are some retailers out there who have gotten through their supply chain issues, and if anything, now have a surplus of product that they need to get out of their warehouses. And so they're trying to figure out like, are there opportunities there to help their commerce businesses, even their advertising businesses? Have you observed any of that? We, we have seen some of that, especially with, um, you know, some retailers putting more products on it, like needing to get through the current inventory to get to the next batch of inventory, um, uh, putting more products on sale or, or spending advertising dollars to help move what's on, currently on the shelves. Um, Partly with an expectation of, you know, more inventories coming, partly with an expectation towards um, the inventory they need to get to of what they're forecasting consumers are going to want in the second half of the year sort of is going to be different than what they were projecting, you know, six months ago, maybe. Right. Yeah. I mean, even, you know, people trying to project Q4. Yeah, exactly. This one, Roku said yesterday, like, no, nah, we're not projecting <laughs> Q4. Like, forget it right now. Um, an interesting you know thing with com you know publishers commerce and advertising businesses and our media editor Kaylee Barber did a great piece on this coming out of the Digital Day Publishing Summit in March is 
that there is some tension between like commerce teams and advertising teams or advertising teams are seeing that there are some clients who are saying, oh, if we just work with this publisher on the commerce front, we can save money. Plus, then we're driving sales. So it's even more efficient for us and cost effective. And so that has been hurting or you know dampening mm-hmm. some ad sales. Has that been something you all have had to manage? Have you had to do anything to kind of protect the two sides of businesses so that they're not cannibalizing? We haven't changed strategy at all, I'd say. I, I would put the like the market is a little bit what I sort of recall what um, maybe like programmatic and direct advertising buying was like maybe five, six, seven years ago where the two on the brand side, they were sort of two different people, two different teams, maybe not communicating with one another. It was the same thing on media company side in a lot of places. Um, And those two things eventually merged. And over the last like 18 months, that was kind of the dynamic on both brands and media companies too. It's like the commerce and affiliate people were sort of doing one thing, the sort of advertising people on the brand side were doing, you know, we're not maybe as close together as they should, should have been same thing on the media side. And we've seen that all merge as, you know, we talked about earlier in the interview and, and, and we've done that too. And so making sure there's, you know, clear lines of communication that you're sort of clearly adding value um, and sort of bringing these things together in a way that is done in a really smart way. That's like focused on customer value is sort of what we've done. You you know, you can do things like um, create first party, audiences off of the sort of back of consumer behavior as it relates to what products they click on, what retailers they're going to, what products they're buying, that type of stuff. Um, and use that to inform the advertising and vice versa. You can use the performance on the ad side to inform, Hey, okay, let's, let's build a sort of an affiliate plus media model that targets these types of audiences on these, on these networks. And so for us, it's about, Hey, how do we bring all of these capabilities to you, the marketer? Um, and in a way that like, makes it easy for you to understand, easy for you to execute, um, and, you know, can clearly show value. And so that's the, I think that's been the hardest part is just trying to bring the pieces together. But I think we're, we're in a good place now. I think the, the larger sort of industry still has a little ways to go, but, but, um, you know, we're, we're on the right track. Got it. And I imagine it helps to like, even just, you know, say to the teams, please be talking to each other if you're dealing <laughs> with the same client, but I imagine it could help even more when like, incentives, you know, become aligned of if there's, you know, commissions, for example, that, you know, the commissions don't incentivize the commerce team to keep the client for themselves or to take a client away from advertising and vice versa. Have you adjusted incentive structures in any way to encourage collaboration between commerce and ad teams? Uh, We haven't. Well, I guess we haven't primarily because the incentives were never sort of in conflict with one another. Um, And so sort of benefit from that, I guess. But but, you know, if you have a a good team that's sort of like working well together that are all focused on the big picture. okay, for X retailer, how do we bring all of this together to you know, we, we want to create more value. We want to capture more of that value for us too. Like, you know, we're not, you know, we're not a charity. We're not giving this stuff away for free. Um, so, uh, but we feel like actually together we can create more value and thus, you know, grow partnerships, um, in that way. Got it. And I imagine the advertising teams may be busy right now with, you know, not only, you know, just what's going on in the advertising demand market, but then, I mean, so we're, we're doing this on July 29th, two days ago, Google announces, Hey, so we're going to push back the cookie change another year. Like It just feels like talking to some publishers, the identity stuff's been in something of a holding pattern. Mm-hmm. Publishers can you know do what they can to get their first-party data platforms together. You all have been doing that with Forte. Um, but then at you know some point, you need the advertisers to get on board. And the advertisers, there hasn't been that urgency for them to do that because third-party 
cookie still exists. How are you managing on the identity front and to what extent have you been able to make any progress in getting advertisers to ease off the third-party cookie? Yeah, well, I'll I'll say the um not to, you know, come off as flippant about it by any means because I know there's like real impact, but when Google announced the sort of pushback to 2024 for us, it was like a minor blip on the radar. <laughs> um, and I remember, so I saw the headline, I think I read the article the next day and it just to sort of understand what was going on, but it didn't, we didn't like scramble to understand what it would mean for our business the way that we did when the first delay came out of pushback to 2023, we're like, okay, how do we sort of understand what the impact is? And that's because of the investment that's gone into Forte over the past two and a half years since we originally launched it. And um, last year, 75% of the impressions that ran across our portfolio leveraged Forte. Um, and so we have sort of already blown past the sort of critical mass of um, what of our ad inventory is leveraging first party versus third party data. So we we are hyper-focused on continuing to progress Forte and create value. And we very quickly integrated the Group 9 audience data into Forte. We announced that Forte was going to help power the concert SSP, which we recently launched. Um, and so we're continuing to progress on that front, but it hasn't gotten in the way of marketer adoption. Um, now, I would like for there to be a sort of an agreed upon set of standards that the <laughs> sure. industry is working towards, but it's not uh, it's not impacting our product roadmaps in any way. Okay, and so you're not having to figure out like, do we how's you know Google Topics going to pan out? Do we want to do UID two Obviously, it has an impact. We want to like understand where the chips are going to fall. Um, but as you mentioned, we're largely taking our um, our cues from the demand side. What do the, what do brands want? What do marketers want? Um, and we announced um, when we launched the concert SSP that it was going to be integrated with the trade desk UID 2.0 um, as well. Um, and they've been a great partner in that respect. And we have gotten um, a number of um, advertisers sort of looking for uh, that specific integration. Um, but um, you know, we still, the industry still has to come to some sort of terms on what it's going to look like in the long term. But, but in the interim, if, uh, feel bad for some, um, businesses that are overly reliant on, um, sort of where Google is heading on some of this stuff. But for us, it's, uh, we've been pretty heads down on execution on the Forte side. Got it. And a lot of the cookie conversation historically is focused on the targeting side of things, being able to reach audiences. But the third cookie has also been really instrumental from a measurement and attribution standpoint. And that I feel like has become like a bigger part of the conversation over the past year or so, maybe even just this year. I'm trying to think of times I've written pieces and they might have been all this year, but just like third party cookie going away, how does that break measurement and attribution? Like obviously it's not going to break measurement and attribution for another two years. Mm -hmm. If then a year from now, Google could say, eh, maybe 2025, mm -hmm. but how do you adapt on the measurement and attribution front given that there's at least a sense of unease on like the mechanism underpinning a lot of measurement attribution. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a huge challenge for sure. Um, and I think it was, I think you're right. It, the conversation over the course of the last six, seven months has really picked up thankfully on, okay, what is the long-term attribution plan here? Um, I remember, I guess it was at um, CES, 2021 maybe um uh 2022 2022 yeah the uh and there was a lot of the conversations we were having was not like 
ready to deploy solutions. It was still this like theoretical conceptual framework of what attribution was going to look like. And that was a big wake up call for us of like, okay, we can't sit around and wait for this to be figured out. Like we have to be more active in these conversations. Um, and so we've, we've started, um, having much more proactive conversations with a lot of the, um, measurement partners to understand what is their long-term solution going to be like, how can we help accelerate? What can we do today to prepare, help prepare them, help prepare ourselves, um, for that. So it's a lot of, you know, it's comes down to a lot of the same, you know, fundamental aspects of, can you build a sort of big first party data file, um, have that consent with users. Can you match that audience it, um, to other, other user files to help, um, draw the conclusions and attribute, you know, exposure and, and, um, and conversions in that respect. And so thankfully the tactics are the same. We got to, you know, we have to work with different partners, technology partners to help uh, make it a reality, but, uh, but, um, that's sort of where things, but I, they're still, there's still a good amount of, of ways to go on the attribution side for sure. Are we winding our way to talking about clean rooms now? Is that, is it that... seems, it seems like maybe that is where we're heading. Okay. I mean, what is Vox media's clean room strategy? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're taking, like I said before, we're focused on a couple of like very fundamental things. One is continuing to sort of have a long-term privacy centric relationship with the user base, working with technology partners in a way that sort of, um, uh, secures that information and working with uh, external partners, largely advertisers, on ways that we can leverage that for value creation, whether that is through clean rooms for targeting our measurement purposes, what is whether it is for audience matching so that we can provide um, insights across what a brand's audience is doing across our platform. Like we've got a unique opportunity to be able to say, here's what your customer base is reading, watching, listening to across the passion points of sports, news, technology, entertainment, lifestyle, shopping, things like that. And so that is the piece that seems to be most in demand right now is, okay, let's, let's sort of do some audience matching and let us give you just a ton of insights around what your audience is doing on our portfolio and that can inform a creative strategy. It can form an ad buying strategy. It can perform in, inform a, a programmatic targeting strategy, things of that nature. And so that's that's the, you know, some of the the solutions might change, but the fundamentals are are going to stay the same. Got it. Okay. So we're having like a great conversation about like really important parts of the business, but in kind of the broader macroeconomic context right now, it's almost like we're talking about like updating the roof, remodeling the kitchen when it's like, oh, there's this big storm coming. Mm-hmm. We're in the middle of earnings season. Meta had a tough earnings report, their first you know, year over year revenue decline since they went public. Um, I mean, Vox Media, you all laid off 39 people this week. With those, like every company is dealing with these macroeconomic impacts in some respects. Some are already feeling, with, feeling them and having to adjust as a result. Some are trying to get ahead of them. What's Where's Vox Media stand in terms of dealing with those impacts at the moment? And to what extent have you all felt those impacts already? Yeah. So um, the as you sort of mentioned, there's a pretty clear tightening of the uh, across the entire economic landscape. Really, every industry is being impacted in, in some way, shape, or form. Um, and we've seen, and as, as you noted, the industry has seen a pretty... Um, uh, a drawdown of advertising demand broadly with, you know, with some of the biggest advertising companies in the world being impacted. And, and we're, we certainly weren't immune from that. And as you, as you mentioned, um, uh, in order to sort of prepare the company for, um, the, 
this this part of the cycle, we needed to uh, eliminate some roles that sort of represented just under two percent of the of the company. So it was a it was a challenging day. Um, uh, but as we think about sort of preparing what the cycle is going to look like and sort of try to get ahead as much as as much as we can um while it's you know no one has a crystal ball it's hard to forecast where where things are heading um but sort of certainly there's a drawdown on advertising demand generally and 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 uh, companies are going to have to adapt to what that what that means for their own circumstances and and i think the the piece that we're seeing is different industry sectors are being impacted in different ways from an advertising standpoint. You know, some, some industries are being impacted by supply chain um, challenges. Some are being impacted by inflation and pricing challenges. Some are being impacted by, um, you know, international conflict, whatever it might be. And so that's the, uh, that's really the challenging part is there's no like through line in any, um, in any significant way. And so, but if you're a marketer today, your job is, as hard as it's ever been, <laughs> you're, you're having to balance the sort of, um, how to make some of these decisions. You're having to balance like performance across different channels, direct response, performance-based media, along with sort of hopefully not letting up too much on sort of the brand branding opportunities that we saw in 2020, that the brands that sort of stayed with branding, um, budgets sort of had an outsized return, uh, when the, when the, the economy returned. And so, um, and maybe most importantly, you're looking for like very flexible partners to help you navigate the uncertainty, like the the, the velocity which with things are being like turned on, uh, reallocated, changing strategies, changing tactics is 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 at a really high rate right now. And so there's only a handful of companies um, that I think we are one of that can help marketers navigate. Okay, you want to change different tactics, you sort of seeing audio works, you want to run, you know, uh, optimize into audio, you want to, um, optimize into a different audience and or a different category, things like that, that, um, we're, we're having a lot of those conversations with, with marketers now. And so it's a, it, it definitely is a, a challenging time for sure. And that advertiser slowdown, are you seeing that across the board or are there some verticals where it's more acute, some verticals where you're not seeing it? Yeah, it's, it, there's been, there's been some, I would say some impact at, at, um, across most industries. Um, and so, uh, the degree to which has changed even in the last couple of months, like some categories that were being impacted more in the first part of the year are sort of coming back more strongly in the second half and vice versa. Um, the piece that we are seeing growth on is, um, is, uh, particularly from a product standpoint is, um, concert and programmatic continue to sort of, um, drive a lot of growth. Audio in particular, um, is something still sort of pretty in high demand from a, a brand standpoint. And so there's still, there's still, um, like big pockets of growth and opportunity. Um, uh, and so it's more just, you know, adapting to the, the current circumstances. What do you attribute to like programmatic driving growth? Cause I mean, the general, you know, thought is the conventional wisdom is, programmatic ends up being the first to go because it's the easiest turn on, easiest to turn off. And even Roku on their earnings call, they talked about how Scatter, which is basically like the streaming version of programmatic, that's where they th saw things turn off. And it also seems like late May, June is when things like fell off a cliff all of a sudden. Did you all see that? Um, we started seeing just like some of the conversations start to move in that direction um, over the last couple of months. I think the the piece with the uh, on the programmatic side is the it's also still more 
performance oriented. And so we're, we're definitely seeing the lean towards more performance, you know, lower down the funnel, easier to attribute, you know, performance and success and metrics to, to that, that part of the, the marketing spend. I'll give you my money if you show me that it's worth it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, um, uh, and so that's been, you know, a part of the trend as well. And so we're seeing that, you know, across, across different customer base and, and, um, and so that's the, you know, that's the flexibility part that it becomes like, thankfully we've got the scale across ONO, across social, across audio to be able to, uh, take, you know, impact in one area and, and capture it in programmatic, for instance, is, is makes it a little bit easier for our business. I hear the word flexibility these days and I immediately flash back to like March, April, 2020, everyone (laughs) where flexibility was the one word that came up all the time. And so, I mean, right now, how you're managing all, like you mentioned, like for the brands, they've never dealt with anything like what's going on right now, but it's like, well, <laughs> what about spring 2020? Like how you all had to manage the business in spring 2020, to what extent are you able to apply a lot of that to what's going on right now? And what are the areas in which you're having to come up with new adjustments? Yeah. So, um, there, there are a lot of similarities I'd say to, um, sort of that spring, early summer, 2020 in terms of managing, um, it's not the, you know, severity of, a of, you know, from a social standpoint, let alone a economic standpoint, but the, um, but some of the like trends are similar in, in terms of short planning cycles, you know, we're, we're still getting a lot of, um, sort of, uh, Q3 opportunities today on, you know, the last couple of days of July. Um, so it's sort of quick planning cycles. It's shorter decision timelines, you know, uh, most, um, brands aren't necessarily green lighting budget until, the moment that they have to make the commitments, you know, which is a totally understandable way to manage the business when you're sort of working through this uncertainty, um, that sort of thing. And so that flexibility, fast paced, um, sort of decision cycles, quick executions that need to happen. Um, those, those things are, you know, very similar to what, what it was like, um, in the initial stages of the, of the pandemic. I think the difference now is we're still having, like more growth conversations with a lot of clients. Like the clients are, are might know that they need to, you know, be a little more conservative today, but are still thinking in ambitious ways around holiday season, around Q4, even around 2023. And so it's, we're sort of can already see where things are, you know, hopefully going to start to pick back up again. Um, Versus, you know, 2020, we, no one knew what was going on. Couldn't see past like next week, let alone next month or next quarter. Got it. So do you feel like you have, what's your sense of like, you know, part of your role is revenue forecasting, revenue visibility, being able to make adjustments ahead of what you expect to be the money coming in. Spring 2020, like no one out of you is like a <laughs> London fog. <laughs> At this point, what's, you know, what visibility do you feel like you have into the rest of Q3 and even into Q4. Yeah, it's it's definitely um, still limited visibility beyond you know the current um, and even even next quarter. So that that necessarily hasn't hasn't changed. But that that's kind of always the you know advertising cycle. You can get some visibility, um, uh, uh, but to the degree that the economy changes, it you know you can throw your forecasting out the out the window too. And so we're not we're not um, sort of 
we don't have the same uh, on the digital side. We don't have the same sort of forecasting mechanism of the TV upfronts, right. where you know your seventy percent of the business is or whatever percentage is closed uh, sort of a year in advance, that type of thing. So that's not that's not new for us. But it also pre- creates opportunity where um, you know we can still grind it out through you know the end of a quarter, end of a year. And I think I think brands trust that um, maybe even in some cases more than a scatter. TV market or scatter streaming market because, um, you know, they know that we're used to sprinting when, um, for better or worse, when, when they need us to and can be really agile and, and a lot more efficient in a lot of ways. And December of last year, at the time of the Group 9 announcement, New York Times reported you all were projecting $700 million in revenue this year, $100 million in net profit. Is that still the forecast? Uh, well, I can't comment on specific numbers, uh, as you probably know, um, but I'd say we're still we still are confident about uh, we're in a we're in a stronger position now as a result of the of the merger. The same way we were with New York Magazine when we had uh, closed that merger a handful of months before um, the pandemic originally broke out, um, and we were uh, we we sort of weathered that cycle stronger as a result of that combination. The same is happening here. Like our we're sort of the merger was built on growth and opportunity and we were bringing together complementary businesses, complementary audiences, complementary brands and capabilities. And we're starting to see that uh, play out. Like we group nine was the culmination of a really, um, of a banner M and a year for us last year. We did five acquisitions last year, group nine being the the last and, and most significant um, in size for um, from that standpoint. But so we, we sort of have a, a good understanding of what it takes to create value, um, out of, out of these combinations. And so this one, um, so we're really, you know, excited about the early signs of that. We still have, you know, a lot of work cut out for us, but, um, uh, but we feel good about in the early, the first four or five months, whatever it's good. And last couple of questions. So we've talked about the advertising slowdown, obviously, you know, every aspect of every business is being affected, but what's your revenue mix right now, you know, between advertising, consumer revenue, commerce, and then, how are you looking to change up that revenue mix? Like, what do you look to, how do you want to carve up the pie, especially given what's going on right now where advertising is affected, but maybe other parts of the business would be um, a bit you know, stronger in the face of what's going on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we don't we don't necessarily have like an ideal version of the pie. Um, advertising is, is still... Um, uh, a large share, the largest share of the of the revenue, and that Majority will continue. That will be the continue to be the case. And the the, but we also think about diversification within the advertising business too. Um, like we've got um, a really strong audio network, a strong video business, a strong programmatic business. We've got a leading branded content studio. Uh, recently won the Digiday Content Studio of the Year to plug um, Vox Creative and the Digiday Awards. But the and and so we think about diversification within the advertising business. And then also diversification outside of advertising. Um, and I think the, and you're you're right. In certain cycles, uh, one benefits more than the other. Like advertising last year experienced a ton of growth, um, uh, and and other parts of the cycles, kind of everything. You know, as we're talking about now, like there's some depression on the consumer confidence side, and so we haven't seen that in you know impact the subscription business. Um, so far, but you know, who's to say it, it won't ultimately, um, have some impact, but the, and so, um, so we really think about like just 
strength and growth and opportunity in each one of those areas, whether it's the the content licensing part of our business, the advertising, the uh, consumer revenue, commerce, um, and, and sort of things of that nature. And so that's the sort of making sure that we've got strong, capable, value adding businesses in each of those areas is, is continues to be the strategy. Got it. So we've talked about how you've built up, you know, the business to date, how you're dealing with all of the economic conditions at the moment. Um, lastly, you know, it seems like everyone is thinking as bad as things may feel right now, first half 2023 is when things could get really bad. To what extent are you already doing things to in preparation for the first half of 2023, maybe even worse? Uh, well, we are focused on just like execution through this year. Um, and, uh, if I if I had a forecasting ability, I would I would use it, but I think I'm uh, sort of limited in that capacity from where we sit today. And so we're gonna like we still think we have a lot of um, exciting opportunity um, to sort of continue to work through the the um, integration and merger with the with the Group Nine team and the Group Nine business, and that's playing out in the market. And so we're gonna keep our heads down and execute through it. We've we've seen as um, strong companies can become stronger through down cycles. We saw that in uh, through 2020, and and we think we can we can execute on that again again here. Got it. Bonus question: Plans to go public? Can't comment on anything at this time. Fair enough, Brian. Thanks for joining the podcast. Appreciate it. And thank you for listening to the Digiday Podcast. Please don't forget to share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. You can even rate us on Apple Podcasts if you like. We'll be back next week with another episode.